Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and this podcast brings you the audio experience of GameDev.TV. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Hello all you GameDev.TV students, today we got special guest and returning guest Max Pierce. And actually Max, let them know why today's special and why you're back on the podcast. So other than to hear your beautiful voice, my friend, you know, which is always the appeal. No, uh, <laughs> exactly. You know, I was just like, do you know what? I'm missing this in my life. <laughs> it's not only just that, but it's also the fact that today is the day I've launched and released my very first book, which is called Let's Design Combat. So it's super you know, exciting for me to be able to say that I've now released it. But not only that, but be able to talk with you, my friend, a bit more about the book. So hopefully listeners can get to know a little bit more about it before you know they think about buying it. Well, I agree. That's, a, that's an awesome reason to come back on. And I've, I was missing your voice, too. I was like, where's, where's Max? I need him in my life. It's <laughs> <laughs> not the same. <laughs> but now let's get started. What was the inspiration for this book? And why did you work so hard to make it happen? Yeah, mate. Uh, so for me, I think it came around because of the fact that as a level designer, and especially in AAA, you know, combat is very present in, in the games that we make. And I felt that when I was creating my levels, that the combat was kind of lacking at a time. And I was constantly thinking about, well, what can I do to improve? I started to get better and better at it. By no means am I saying I'm the, the best or the perfect subject. But what I found was that when I was trying to research and reference more, I couldn't find a great deal. And then at that time, at the end of last year, I think it was the second half of 2019, I wrote a, a mini series on combat design, which was received very well. You can find that on uh, Gamma Sutra, as well as leveldesign.org. It was a three-part series. And from there, I just started to think, well, hold on, there's so much to learn here that I don't think, as I said, is very easily found knowledge. And I wish I knew this all sooner so that I could be a better level designer. So it inspired me to be like, do you know what? People have been asking me to make a book for a while. I thought this is a subject that I'm very passionate about. It's something that I've been learning about for these last, you know, X months to years. And I just thought, do you know what? Hopefully this can teach someone to be better and that they can, you know, skip some of the hardship that I went through and become a better LD and a great way to share the information I felt, mate. No, 100%. It's, I mean, you're seven years in the industry. I mean, you are an expert. You know, so <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> 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 you know, excited for it, matey. Uh, but it's, like I say, it's still, there's always stuff for us to all learn. Like, you know yourself, mate, it's, it's a continuous learning progress. So if I can just help be a useful resource to someone out there that, you know, I feel the book's done its job and that's what would make me most proud. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're on the path. I've seen a lot of uh, people excited for this and uh, on Twitter and, and I, I, I love the book when I was reading it. So yeah, you're, uh, you're definitely doing it. Cheers, man. I really appreciate it. What people don't realize is I've slipped him a good 20 books to say that, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we were going to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> No, but like, like you said, there is, I, you know, let's say I loved being on the podcast last time. So I gave you guys an early access to the, the, the overall product so you guys could, could see it. So I'm really glad that you 
that you like it makes. I really appreciate it. My favorite part of the book is also the art. It really like captures me and makes me see what you're actually talking about. So what was the inspiration for the art design? Oh man, this is a great one. So it came in, in different ways. So the fact to me that I found a lot. So one, one way was that if you read many level design or game development books, they always take screenshots from other you know, games and projects, which is great. It's great to learn from them. But because it's in a book, it always ends up black and white, and the print may not always be the best way to actually see it due to the print quality. And that's just sometimes of it. And I was like, man, like I don't really want to do that. I want it to be like very much its own. And then, as we've seen, blockouts have become more and more acceptable. We've seen loads of people show their blockouts. We've got hashtag Blocktober and all of these. So I thought, this is a book by a level designer for the level designers. <laughs> So let's keep it simple and make it feel like it's a blockout. So as you said, it's easy to understand. But if you're making a blockout, you could literally see the images we have on the pages and replicate them in your own in your own level very easily. And then finally, with the characters, uh, Jay, who's the the artist for the book, she did a phenomenal job because she added a little more like character and life into to who you'll see in there. But yeah, it comes from a different, you know, many different places. But I said, it's by a level designer for level designers. So I really wanted it to make it look like when you open the pages, it's like you're in its own level design editor. Anyone who's picked up, you know, Unity, Unreal, or any other kind of modeling kit or engine will instantly kind of recognize the space with the, the pretend UI in the top right-hand corner or the gridded background and the text is all in window displays. So it's these sort of elements that, yeah, I really want to just ground it and make it feel like it is in that of an editor. That's spot on. It, it does exactly that. It's entertaining. And it's, it definitely, if you haven't seen this book or haven't bought it yet, I'd recommend just for the artwork, just get it. It's beautiful. Now, let's go into a little bit deeper into the book. So you started talking about like, architecture metrics. Now, mm. let's dive deeper into that. What exactly is, what's an example of that for someone who may be reading a book, but it's like, what, what is it? Like, what's, where's a AAA game or an indie game where you're like, hey, this is what I'm talking about? Mm. Yeah, mate. So this is something I think we, and especially myself when I was coming out of, the, out of university into the industry, I didn't know much about metrics and it's not much that we see spoken about even through articles online or anything. I mean, there are there now, but it's not as much as I think should be present in terms of what students are learning or hobbyists or just you know passionate people wanting to get in. But metrics are essentially is the construction's spaces needed. So you need to understand how tall your character is, which is normally 1.8 meters, roughly, it tends to be. Okay. There might be some changes, but we need to make sure that we make the space feel realistic, like it does in that of, you know, what we walk around when we see our day-to-day -day apartments, schools, or say coffee shops. And in that, we kind of measure it to make sure it helps deliver that but not only that realistic experience but also helping with gameplay too so when you think about if you're as i said this is mainly about combat if you have combat scenarios you need to make sure that there is enough space for not only the player maybe there's friendly ai maybe there's enemies and make sure there's given enough space 
the all of those involved to make the combat great. So that's why metrics are very important and why I believe, you know, it is the very first point you'll see on the book. It's about breaking it down and understanding more in terms of how we need to construct these spaces. We can't just build them, you know, willy-nilly. We have to make sure that the spaces have purpose and they have enough, you know, size to be able to pull off what you want in a spectacular fashion. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then do you have an example of, like, a game that gets it right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, I mean, most, most games do, mate. Like, the thing is, is metrics are so important that it's very rare you see someone get it wrong especially okay. in the AAA space you know because it's so it's become so much part of the process and i think that's that's the thing we talk about there when you're asking if someone does it so right it's because of the fact that we as you know lds and especially the the industry has been along around a lot longer than i've been alive but it's now so much of common practice that people don't realize it. They just think, oh, the space feels really nice here, or it's really tight space, or it's a very open space. But all of that is plotted, thought about by many intelligent people who go off and make these choices. Now, does camera have a big factor in that? Like, can you do good architecture metrics and still fail with the camera? Oh, yes, for sure, mate. We just talked about the the player, for example, being 1.8 meters. Yes. And then, you know, if it's a traditional door, the doorway would tend to be two meters. Now, mm-hmm. if it's a third person camera, you tend to find traditionally third person cameras are further back and also slightly above the player's height. So if you kept the door at two meters, that camera is going to clip or go through that wall every time. So you'd need to make it bigger. So say, for example, maybe it needs to be 2.5 meters tall. So maybe it looks a bit big in terms of the actual player stood next to the door, but when the player goes through it, there's no camera difficulties going through. So there is that balance, but again, it comes through testing and iteration that you figure it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when people do plan out their levels, is um, what are the mistakes most people make? Like, like mm. doing an overall, like, hey, I want to put this enemy over here, this crate over here. When does it feel like the space is too big and the space is too small? How do you get those sweet spot? Yeah, mate. So there's, I mean, there's many things that people can, you know, do right or wrong. And that's why we iterate. And iteration is so important in terms of what we do because no one gets it right first try. Just what I tend to see from, I'd say, students the most is the fact that not only is it about the size, that it feels very small or big, but it's also the sense of what's happening. Sometimes the space, I don't know what the space is. You know, is this taking place in a warehouse? Is this taking place in a hospital? So we need to understand that, like logically, what is this space? And not only once you decide if it is warehouse or hospital, but where are we in relation to that? Because if we just see these blank empty walls and by no means I'm telling everyone you need to make it look beautiful. You don't. You can have simple LD props or boxes and squares that you can mm-hmm. make out shapes to sell that. Okay, well, this is the uh, this is the emergency ward. This is the surgery table. This here may be just a closet. This may be the reset where the reception is. By having small little elements like that, you can help tell not only 
what's the space we're in, but also the story, because then you can start to show if this uh, hospital was overrun by zombies, we can start to show that the tables are flipped over. There's a lot of like, you can just do red squares to make it look like that's blood on the wall, for example, elements like that. So you see a lot of kind of loose ends and open interpretations in the sense of not really nailing down what it is, what is the purpose of the levels, where we are, what's the story. These kind of elements I see a lot in young designers, as well as the traditional sense of a lot of rooms are very boxy. Mm-hmm. Not every room is a box. How do you change that up? And not to say that some rooms aren't a box. By no means do you have to change it up every sec, every room. But it's again comes down to that of fact of, well, hold on. How is it again that we, you know, we understand which should be this shape and which ones are not? as well as messing around with height elevation. But there's a lot, mate. There's a lot that goes into making great levels. And I could, I could list off a thousand and one things uh, every day. But <laughs> it's, yeah, there's always a lot, a lot well, for me. Now that you say that, I think all the, including myself and the game did that TV people, we want to hear at least one of the things that make a level great. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of making the level, the level great, mate, it's, there's obviously a load of things that goes into it, but it's one of the things that I always think makes the level great is say something that makes it memorable. And it doesn't have to be a large kind of explosive element. We just did a level design weekend as part of my Patreon challenge. And one of the elements in one of the examples was by one of the participants. And just so everyone knows, the level was a Call of Duty level in which the players had to come rescue the hostages on a cargo ship, something very similar to Captain Phillips. There's a lot of other examples out there. Basically, you would arrive in to extract the hostages and free them. And one of the cool moments that, again, it wasn't fully implemented, but it was in the blockout, was the fact that there was a typhoon coming towards the ship. So it was kind of like a timed event. And by the time you rescued the hostages, you went through the, you, sorry, you exited the, the hull of the ship to get back onto the, to the, I think it's the brig, to the main, where the, the ship is. My ship lingo is really bad, so I apologize. But basically, they had a trigger which made, when we first were there, all the containers on top of the boat were orderly snagged. When we come back, they're all tipped over. The path has changed completely. But that made it memorable because the fact that, oh, the level's adapted, it's changed, it makes sense contextually because typhoons happen, you know, big waves come and go. And now it's also added up a new sense of challenge because when we're backtracking through the space, it feels like a new space, but that made it memorable. So thinking about stuff like that, it doesn't even need to be that heavy gameplay. It can be something like a nice vista where, you know, I was recently talking about Final Fantasy VII, which I just completed the remake and I loved it. But a lot of times they do like great reveal shots, especially for because it's playing on your own nostalgia with it being a remake. But there's a nice shot where you go to Aerith's house for the first time and the, the shot you see when you finally come through to it is beautiful. That is a memorable moment in its own right because it's such a, a fantastic view that you as the player are getting to see. So things like that. Think about different, you know, it's what makes that level unique. What is going to make the player go, ah, I remember that one. Timefall 2, they have a, why am I forgetting the name of it? Just Is it cause and effect? Where you have the mechanic which makes you switch timelines. 
that makes it very memorable. They had another level where you're in a construction factory that's building houses, and that kind of gets you trapped inside, and that's very memorable too. Many different things that can help make it memorable. I said it doesn't need to be the big elements, but you thinking about that can really help you. Now I'm curious, when you say do like reveal shots, is that something you like decide while building the level and say, hey, we want to do this reveal shot? Or is that just someone taking your level and being like, we can do this cool reveal shot right here? It depends, mate, because it can okay. come from if you have your, once you gather your information in your planning stage mm -hmm. and that you understand that, okay, in this quest, we're moving through locations okay. or the player's sneaking into a base that's when you can maybe plan in a shot, either the shot when we're entering to the base so it makes it feel like it's very overwhelming for the player, or that we've just come into a, for example, a secret uh, laboratory, and when the first shot we come through the elevator, it's like, whoa. Or sometimes it can come through, okay, well, you've made a level this far, we're handing it over to art because they're taking it over to make sure it looks pretty, and they go, oh, there's this really, empty, like, there's a space where there's no gameplay. Do you mind if I, you know, push that even further and you have the talk with them and you, of course, you say, go for it. It's an amazing idea. So, yeah, it can come from any member of the team at any time. But, yeah, if you can, plan it through. Really gather as much information as you can in your planning stage. Okay. So now let's move on to cover metrics because it's one of the key foundations for any game with mm -hmm. combat elements. What is an example of some good and bad cover metrics and why is cover metrics so important? Yeah. So the cover buffer, see, this is also a, a big thing with level design in uh, general, is the fact that, the fact that uh, <laughs> there's always different terms in different spaces and different workshops. So it can go from cover buffer or it might be cover spacing. Depends which studio you're in. I just called it cover buffer for mine, but you might also have heard of it called cover spacing. Okay. But this here is the separation between that of the cover. What you're trying to think about when you're creating this, because again, it should be something that your team plans and is then a rule, well, more or less a guideline. The reason it should be that is because it helps the player have a set different uh, distance to allow them to basically plan the risk versus the reward. How is that the, how is it now the right opportunity to head to the cover? When is it, is it going to be too dangerous? Do I have to wait for the enemy to reload? Not only this, but having it like it in, in this manner, you tend to find that then you make cover also more valuable because the fact if all the cover was connected or like half a meter gap between them, there is no risk in it. So you need to plan about that, understanding when's the right time and also it can help for your performance too, because if you have a constant room again, filled with cover and props, that's gonna be very heavy and taxing on your game. So by having that, you reduce the amount of props too. So there's many elements that go into that one, but again, establishing that is, is very important. And I think uh, Ricardo, didn't you have something about if cover would work with um, like regular combat melee instead of uh, just shooting? Yeah, so uh, what do you feel is the biggest difference when designing for melee combat instead of uh, gun gunplay? Mm -hmm. Very good question, mate. So in terms of that, I tend to find that the big difference is obviously the fact that your spaces have changed. 
if you're designing for combat, it's more about kind of your where your combat, your cover, sorry, in that combat space will meet. As soon as you enter a room, you'll probably need some cover, right? And then you'll dart cover around, not only for the player to have, but for the enemies to take advantage of too. But when it's melee combat, you tend to find that there's a term often used as fishbowls. The fact is they're these big, more rounder spaces, so everything kind of leads you and keeps you in the center. And then stuff like cover, which you don't necessarily need because you don't need to hide because you have to get close to your enemy as fast as possible, will be more pushed to the side. So there's more designated, not necessarily empty space, but free space for the player to move around and not be able to get clipped on or cause any issues when they're trying to dodge or attack for that. So that was the, is one of the big differences between them, mate. Something like the boss arenas in Dark Souls, for instance. Yes, that, or if you think about in the God of War 2018, they're very open for that too, as well as if you look at any of the DMC games, you tend to find that when a player goes into combat, if you notice, all the props are kind of conveniently pushed to the side because of the fact that they need that space for you to pull off those amazing badass combos. So it's very much like that, that you keep it in mind to give the space. As we talked about with metrics earlier, it's the difference is too, is when you roll, say in something more like gears or the vision, it's kind of more tactical, right? You're not rolling as often, but as we talk about with Dark Souls, you're spamming that roll at times because you're just trying to dodge, move, get out, get the hell out of there if needs be. And you need to make sure that the player doesn't get frustrated by getting clipped on any of that as well. So that, again, yeah, movement can be a big cause for it too. When, when cover buffer, when can it feel tedious? Like how can we make mm. the cover buffer flow better? That's a good question, mate. This is really coming down to the type of combat space you're after, right? When you need to think about how, how do you want the player to feel? Now, if it's, say, the player versus something like a, a sniper enemy, you may want to make it feel like it's closer or sometimes longer, depending if you want the player to strategically move and time the distance, right? Make that tension very prevalent in your levels. Yet, if it's something more where you have uh, enemies, for example, who like to charge in with knives or anything like that, then you don't. You basically have to make sure there's less cover, as similar to what we mentioned in terms of the difference. So those enemy types can move around a lot freer, and that you can still have cover, but you can use it more in a loop in a sense where the player can still back up and move around with hopefully out hitting their back or getting clipped on anything. So you can use it like that, and that will help. But it's more about the space that you want to create, mate. And also, what's going to help with this is your environment artist, because the fact you know, you may have set out the block out layout with the help of their genius and their beautiful eyes that they can turn this into a believable space and make it feel like essentially all the props there are meant to be there contextually. If it's a reception area we spoke about earlier in the hospital, making sure that there are, for example, the reception desks, chairs, so we know all of that is there. We just make sure metrically the player and the enemy can move through the rows of chairs, for example, without getting frustrated. So all of that comes into it, mate, but it's all about designing the combat for that. Like, what do we want? Do we want heavy, intense uh, ambush style of combat where the enemies are rushing the player 
or we do we want the players to feel very pinned down where they have to tactically wait till that sniper is reloading their weapon for them to run and take cover under now i'm curious when you when the artists go in to like finish up the levels do you ever go back and look at it and be like "Ooh, i don't like it now because of the artworks in it yes you will have iterations just to double check the gameplay works on there okay. and then you'll discuss with them hey look maybe this doesn't work because of x y and z or that's a great idea, let's push it forward and make it even better. So it, it's always on that, right, where they will, we will first do the block out, the artist will then come make it beautiful, and after that point we just go through, double-check everything, see if it is all working logically, and moving from there forward. Okay. And now let's get into enemy archetypes, which is probably the section four of this part of the book. Mm -hmm. And this is a fun one, because it's like, Depending on how the game designers work on the, the enemies, it's how you're going to build your levels. Now, when you're building levels, do you always know what the enemy archetypes are going to be, or is it kind of like something, an ongoing process? So it depends sometimes on the studio and also and sometimes on the project, just due to the fact that, unfortunately, things do change in development, and enemies that you may have been told are going to be there at the start might not make it to the end product. Which again, sometimes sucks, but that's just part of the process of the game, right? Is constantly get iterations. But you'll have an idea, even if the the actual playable versions of them aren't there yet to test with, but you'll still know, okay, well maybe, I understand we're gonna have, for example, uh, if we say the God of War example, I understand there's gonna be these kind of frost knights. So if that's the case, I need to make sure that there is a lot of space because they take a lot of damage to get through. And then there's going to be archers. Okay, so if there's archers, I need to make sure there's like kind of like a second story so the player can use the Leviathan Axe to take them out. Now, that's, you know, a rough idea. But in terms of it, when you finally get the actual one-two test inside the editor, maybe that knight takes, you know, doesn't take as much damage as you thought. So, you know, okay, you need to make that space a little bit smaller. Maybe the ledge you've placed is a little bit too high, and it's out of their their range with their bow and arrows. So we bring it down a little bit, a little bit lower in order for that. So yeah, it all comes through iteration, but you can still technically go through, plan it all, and you know at least give a rough kind of guideline of what it is you intend to use that space for. Now it's cool because in the in the book you have four different type of enemies. Mm. Is, there gonna, is that always like the standard or is it going to be more, is it going to be less? And is the range always going to be the same? Like I know some are for 5 meters, some for 20 meters. Mm. Can like yeah. an enemy be like split, like a sniper and a grunt at the same time? Mm. So yeah, again, this is all going to depend on your game. The book, for examples that I give, are just kind of examples that you'll find. These are characters that you tend to see in most games in some form or fashion. Like, for example, we talk about snipers. I just gave the example with God of War. Yeah. Okay, there isn't anything such like an actual sniper rifle in God of War, but you do have the archers who do go further away, so we need to understand how they act and behave. But yes, these are kind of the more common types that we've all, we've all grown accustomed through without our years in playing games. And from there, the stats will be different. But this is just a nice example to show you as the reader Oh, okay. Not only should I thinking about the space that I'm building, but I should also be thinking about who's occupying that space. How are they going to occupy that space? What do they need to make that space actually fun to play around with? That kind of element, which again, if you think about 
you get the right information, you study about, then you'll be able <coughs> to actually know and make it even better. I bet you go through a lot of iterations when you do enemy combinations. Like you probably uh, have like... <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a few sometimes. Because again, we talked about metrics and how that's come up with the, the teams, right? Mm-hmm. And the teams all decide on this. Well, for for your enemy types, you might find that certain enemies actually don't work well together, but others do. Like you, th- for example, you thought, "Oh, I know," because the fact that we talked about enemies with knives or melee weapons, they're going to rush the player, as most likely will a shotgunner, but just that slightly, the melee is slightly faster than the shotgunner. Well, then that starts to become unfair, for example, because it turns out those melee types move way too fast and push the player out of cover. And then shotgun enemies are so overpowered with their shotguns, so they get shot real easy and die after three hits. You're like, ah, this isn't fun. This is just frustrating. So then you go, okay, let's combine the melee with the sniper because the sniper takes a while to reload. They can only fire one shot and they might miss because of their distance. But it still has the challenge of the melee pushing the players out of cover, and then the enemy has their opportunity with the sniper rifle to take the player out. So it's only through iteration of that do you actually get an understanding of what works, what does not work, and you can pick in from there. Mm-hmm. Now, for anybody listening, now when you're doing an iteration, how long does it usually take? Is it like one day of work, or one week, or one month before you feel like it's right? Uh, it it really depends, mate, because it depends on the feedback, right? Yeah. The I've had levels where okay, this is going to take me half a day to do, and I've had levels where it's taken me two weeks of iteration because it needed that care. So it really depends, mate. There is no defined yeah. answer or kind of guideline. It's all going to be on the state of your level, and you're going to have just so again, people are aware of it. You're going to have. You're going to have levels which go super easy for you to build and understand and end up being fucking so cool so quick. And you're going to have levels where you're like, ah, no one believes in this. You're starting to question, was this a good level idea? Mm-hmm. But only when it comes through more iteration, you're like, actually, I'm glad we stuck with this. But it just took a little extra. So those those happen with it. Okay, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. It's like sometimes you just got to fight through that level or sometimes scrap it and be like, Let's change it up. It's not working out. Yeah, exactly, mate. So you never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, coming back to to, to iterations, uh, how how do you uh, avoid the sunken cost fallacy in those cases? Like when you spend like a month or even more uh, mm. trying to perfect a level, but it still doesn't feel right. How do you manage to actually sit down? Sit everyone down and say, okay, guys, this is not going to work. Let's do a different level. Let's scrap everything. Mm. So it can depend, mate, because sometimes it might not even be you who gets the chance to say that. It might be your higher-ups who are like, right, this isn't working after testing. Because, again, if you're involved so much in it, you might be blind to part of it, which is great to have someone come through. But you'll find it through testing as well, mate. There's times where you're just playing it and you know, you're like, oh, okay, this bit wasn't fun, I'm gonna redo it. And after you redo it, you're like, man, this still isn't fun, or this still doesn't feel right, or like the area just isn't great. And then you eventually have to, you know, really just be okay with saying, Do you know what, guys? It's not good. We're not in a good state. 
and we need to fix this. Now, hopefully, you've acknowledged that early enough for production and your leads to be like, okay, yes, you're going to need a bit more time. Luckily, we have some time to do that. Because if you've been working on it for two years and then suddenly decide, now, nah, guys, this isn't good enough, and we've got to release the game in three months, it's probably not going to happen. So you're going to have to prioritize, okay, well, what is it that's wrong with it? What is it we can salvage? What is it that needs a complete redesign and this? Because also the other thing you got to think about is that your level doesn't just impact your level design work. We talked about earlier working with environment art. As soon as they're involved, okay, well, now you've got someone else's time. Do they have enough time to go back and redo the art for it and make it better? You know, animators, maybe there's a, a cool cutscene there. Okay, well, it was now once taking place at the surgery uh, section, but now we need it to take place at a, a bedside table. Well, then, okay, we've now got to go through and tweak that entirely so there's someone else's, uh, someone else's time on top of that. So, yeah, but you should be playing and testing all the way through, guys, because there's moments you're not going to see everything. Just because the fact you are so you so much have your blinders on, which is also why it's important to have other people test your work too. Yeah, so it was about structure and organization. Uh, I was I was looking through the layout of the outline of your book, and I was just kind of wondering, like, how did you develop or discover that kind of sequence for developing those systems over time? Mm. It's a really good question, mate. So to me, it's really funny because now the books are, I've gone back and looked at it and I was like, damn it, I should have tweaked it even more. Like there's one or two I would swap around and I was like, curses. Uh, but no one's going to hear this part, right? But, uh, <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> Cutting room floor. Yeah, no, it's fine to keep it. But it's it was a good one. The one thing I wanted to focus on when I was making that, and you'll see this with the, the chapters, is the whole planning, block out, and iteration. The reason I wanted it to make it in that structure and name those chapters though because of those phases is because that's roughly hopefully if you come in at the right time of the project you're starting your levels that's how it should go down first you know it should be about first everything in the planning stage is gathering information it's learning all you can from all the other disciplines and other departments before you move on to your block out then chapter two is the block out where it's actually you creating that spaces it's you making sure that it facilitates the combat that you need. And then finally wrapping it up with iteration, because we were just talking about it then before you joined, Matey, was the fact that iteration is just a constant process as well. You don't just iterate once, you iterate multiple times over, as I'm sure you know. So I really wanted to focus on making it actually seem and sound like how it would be in the actual industry as well. So LDs and future LDs students would actually understand that these are important elements. It's not just me making a cool name like Ninja Red 1, Ninja Red 2. Like It's, again, all about making sure that it feels part of the process. So I, I don't know how familiar you are with corporate methodologies and terminology for those kinds of things. Uh, have you ever heard the term waterfall before? Yes, I have heard the term waterfall. <laughs> so this looks like kind of a, a hybrid waterfall, waterfall agile to me. Oh, okay. So, uh, so it starts with waterfall, which is plan block, and then build would be the final pace there. But then you go into iterate, which, which I think is perfect for level design. I'm I'm an old yeah. level designer as well. I got started like making maps in Doom way back in the yeah. day. Yeah, 
fucking awesome, mate. But yeah, it's it's definitely it's one of those things where again you, you know yourself is once you go through and you learn about all that stuff, you are like, oh, okay, this is. And again, each studio has slightly different methods, but that's something again. I just want because I wish I knew this because you said you know, there's waterfall, there's agile, there's many other different like forms right. as well as scrum and yeah, yeah, there's tons of them, all that stuff. But I just wanted to keep it to to the basics of of you know, which is just. I'm a simple man with simple needs and keep it to the simple <laughs> methods of explaining it to matey because it's all again about that you know that that method that sometimes I feel because we spoke about earlier but we talked about you know sometimes we see mistakes that students make and a lot of time and I made this mistake when I was coming up as well which is again part of the reason why I structured it like this was the fact that a lot of people just want to jump straight into the block out and just start making something because that's the funnest part of the stage. It's the coolest part of the stage. But we all sometimes miss the planning. And that's why I was like, I want to make sure this is dedicated to that because people need to understand and hopefully don't make the same mistakes that I made and can go from there. And the other thing is I see a lot of different misunderstandings on, you know, other, I guess, like channels that break designs down or whether it is through courses out there and they tend to just be like yeah and then they just did this and figured it out that's not how it seems like everything has been iterated on before the game has come yeah. out yeah and you don't you don't make a great level first try or if there if there is someone who's done it let me know because i'll shake their hands because <laughs> i've not yet to see it <laughs> All right, let's get into chapter two of the book, Level Blockout. And it's one of your most enjoyable parts of the process, right? Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. So let's get into decision points. And what is the thought process behind creating the decision point? Yeah, mate. So in terms of decision points, these are the spot where players can get to see their level, where they can actually be able to go through and you know plot, strategize before they actually engage in combat. And this is something that, you know, I do recommend in most combat situations, not all. If it's an ambush that you want the player to be overwhelmed, then don't have a decision point. But the whole purpose of these is to make sure that the player can just take a breath, understand what's going on, and then go through. But the challenge with decision points and the hardest thing in terms of balancing them is by making sure that they're not, how do I say, super safe. Because if you've got a spot which is really advantageous, the player is just going to camp there. They're never going to leave. So you've got that hard balance with those there. But again, decision points are a really nice entry point for the player. So again, they can understand what's going on in your level. Are you thinking about this mostly from the perspective of multiplayer games like PvP shooters you know, where you're fighting against each other? Or are you thinking about this also in the context of like campaign levels and things like that? Also in the context of campaign, because it applies to both. Because the fact is, if you have, if we take, for example, uh, Last of Us, um, just because I'm playing it right now. So I'll talk about the first one, not to spoil it for the second one, because Twitter has been my <laughs> freaking arch nemesis ever since It's that. been bad, yeah. And I'm just like, Christ, um, <laughs> I hate all of you who got to play the game before I did. But, uh, <laughs> but no, like, in the very first one, where Joel and Tess are coming to find, I've forgotten the guy's name, but someone who essentially owes them money for stealing their weapons. There's a moment, there's a cutscene there where you see them on a high ridge looking down to kind of the factory they're in. 
Now, it ends the cutscene with them going down. I'll talk about that why in a second. But from here, the player can see, okay, there's a big factory. There's two enemies here right now, and there's probably more inside. So he, they can already strategize, okay, so there's different enemies here. So we can either time it so they, we take them out now or wait a little bit. And the reason that they jump down in the cutscene is because of the fact that if they stayed there, they could be too overpowered and it wouldn't encourage players to use stealth takedowns. So it's about that all. But yes, I used it in Division on main campaigns. But again, you can use that the same if you were making something for Call of Duty Modern, uh, for Warzone, sorry, or Overwatch. Allow me to refine the question just a little bit more, mm. too, <laughs> okay? Because I, I still feel like many of the, the games that you were talking about there were very highly combat-oriented. So the, the the thing that I'm getting at here, and, and everybody hates me because I bring this up all the time, but when we worked on Half-Life... You gotta drop that in. <laughs> right. So one, of the, one of the design points that we had when creating levels there was that basically nothing should happen without the user causing it more or less right like you you if you just stood still we didn't necessarily want you know with with rare exception there were some roaming you know mobs and stuff like that but we didn't really want anything to happen without the player actually making it happen and i feel like that's kind of somewhat related to decision points how do you how do you feel about that i mean you know you worked on half-life i don't need to say anything but you're, you're always <laughs> right that's, there's nothing <laughs> to say no i i completely agree with you mate because it's applicable in that way too but like but just because obviously it's called less design combat, it's more focused on that section. Oh. But yes, yeah. it's exactly that. If you are, it can be used to help tell the narrative, for example, where we hear something going on, the player maybe needs to hear or see, you know, all of that. So yes, it's applicable in other parts of your level as well, or different types of levels too for that. But yeah, exactly, mate. It is not just for combat. I've just used it for the book of combat but again you worked on half-life yeah. i don't, oh, I don't know yeah that's cool yeah so i mean you're you're talking about things that are like more tactical in my mind that i had never really even considered in this book which i found really valuable i appreciate it mate and it's it's a thing though isn't it like, like you know yourself man where at first you like you just either learn it or you do it instinctively and it works out fine and then someone has come up with a name for it and you're like oh Oh, I didn't realize that that was a term. Yeah, for no, that was like that was when we were making some of our original Quake Deathmatch maps. Level loops <laughs> was that term that we developed oh, back go. in those days. It was you know how do you lay out the Deathmatch map? What are the level loops? Yeah. Because you'd like run around, you know, take a loop through the course to get the rocket launcher, basically. <laughs> yeah, and you know, basically, what you're asking for is a a cut of the money from the book. I see here, you're like, look, we came up with the level loops. <laughs> I get it. No, it's, that's it, mate. And it's like when someone uh, mentioned the term affordances for me before, I was like, what the hell is that? But like, you get it. It's about what the player is able to do. And again, yeah. So, but sometimes I think that's, you know, what I said with my, the naming of my chapters, because I'm a simple man, I'm a layman. Just keep it for, for people to understand. I don't feel the need because I'm not very smart. I don't need to pretend and write fancy words because, uh, like I said, I'm an idiot. So. <laughs> Aren't we all? Now, I'm curious. What do you think is a subjectively bad decision point? Oh, okay. So I don't have any examples or anything like that, but I'll just 
I'll just say things that I imagine would make a really bad decision point. So a bad decision point would be like, well, we're coming through a corridor or an entrance where it's all concrete walls and I can't see anything. The player might be able to hear a conversation, but I don't know roughly in what direction it is. Or it might be the fact that it's a really nice place where, say, for example, I'm on some scaffolding and it's two meters high and I can see the entire combat layout or just the overall level. And I've got so much cover around me that I don't need to worry about ever getting shot or hurt. Or why would I move from there? Mm. I have my sniper rifle. I'm perfectly covered. I can lob grenades from here all day long. Why would I move? So it's that that I think make it the fact that I don't see slash know what's going on. I don't know where it is in terms to be able to to move to. I'm indestructible or invulnerable in my current state. It's those sort of things that I think make bad decision points as well. So, or as we mentioned just there earlier, mate, is where something happens and I didn't even realize it happened. You know, like maybe the the princess we've come to save has just been murdered and I've just been stuck behind a concrete wall being like, who? What? <laughs> What's know? going on? Yeah, Why am exactly. I here? Yeah. Okay. So those are things that I think would actively make a bad decision point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now moving forward into combat fronts, that can be very challenging because you can get overwhelmed quickly. How do you mm-hmm. establish and make that like engaging and balanced? Yeah, so the combat fronts is really one that just helps players understand, you know, where they are in terms of level, where the enemy is, and kind of understand that fight before we engage, the lines of engagement, and thinking in the book I talk about how it should be thought of trench trench warfare. Mm-hmm. Obviously in the, the world wars, we had the trenches, you know, your side on one, the, the Nazis are the enemies on the, the other side. And then we had this kind of open, muddy hell space, which is no man's land, which is what people were constantly fighting for to keep pushing up. So what you'll tend to find is before you get into it, and it applies to also your decision points as well, we don't want to just throw the player into the middle of a section where all these enemies are being, are occupying the space because then you're just going to most likely die and not know what's happened to you. But if you can have that nice sense of establishing okay, I can see the enemies, they're about 15 meters away. They're kind of moving around this space. I'm kind of here, I have some cover, they have some cover. So maybe I need to get close to them to do stealth takedowns, or maybe it is I want to get through and you know push closer because I have a really powerful shotgun. So you can start to then put your kind of cover to help move through and establishing that I'm here, the enemy is over there, and we're starting to kind of meet in the middle when the combat kicks off. And then I think you mentioned at one point Gears of War did something where you like take control of something. Like, ah, so yeah, that's changing, it, yeah. Your, changing yeah. your fronts. So it, the fronts is for, again, different terminology. Just again, show, it's showing you how fancy I am here, team. You know what I mean? I'm just <laughs> trying to pretend that I'm real educated. But it comes from the fact that the front is, is of where the combat's happening because the front can always change. Mm-hmm. So I so say if we're fighting north to south, that's fine, we know this direction. But then if reinforcements come, they might come in from the east. So now we need to rotate and hopefully there's cover. So now we fight from west to east, which is perfectly fine. But what Gears of War do really well is we understand that, okay, I'm coming into this level. There's a turret 
So we need to make our way to take out the turret or the enemy occupying the turret. Once we've done that, we then get the turret ourselves. And so we're now facing the direction where we just entered from previously and enemies come towards us. So we're still reusing that space. You're testing the player's mental map, how their understanding of the level was built. And then they can kind of let loose with the turret as well, which makes them feel like absolute badasses too. Mm-hmm. They're like, no more. You're not shooting me anymore. I'm going to be that guy. Exactly. <sighs> so now this one's interesting because we go into reduce long sight lines. Mm-hmm. And I like this one because like, I'm a programmer. Aaron's a programmer. But you, you, talk into, you talk about the fact that like you don't want to sh- you can't really like show everything in a level because then it's going to be too much to load too much memory so mm-hmm. for level designers you don't understand that like why exactly would it be a nightmare from a programming standpoint oh i thought you guys were going to answer this. you two the programmers yeah, I, totally <laughs> I think you know you've just shown off to me you guys have just flexed you're like we're the programmers <laughs> here Max. answer the programming question what yeah, no, let's let's ask him let's ask him from a practical perspective and a design <laughs> perspective why do you want to keep lines low because yeah we've got the technical answers over here <laughs> You so you, I get it, guys. You want to embarrass me? I understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, so in terms of it, mate, like it comes from, I guess, from the renderings aspect, right? Because just to talk about in Division, we had the fact that you could stand and in the streets of New York, and because it's very grid based on how New York is, is is actually created, you could stand from one end of the street and could see oh, very yeah, far. Yeah. Down. I used to live in New York. Yeah, you oh, could so you see can... all the way down the entire freaking yeah the entire island. And so to try do that on your consoles or PC. Oh my god, that would never <laughs> work. <laughs> exactly, and especially when there's multiple players there right, going at it too. So it only just make it more frustrating. Yeah, like people firing rockets from each end of the <laughs> avenue of the Americas, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's it so the fact is you get you want to do that so the console can render stuff without you know, assets popping in or out but not also that but from the design point of view too is the fact that you want to make sure that you can see where you're getting shot from you also want to be able to you know as we talked about push forward with the cover make it feel like you're making progress and also it's a way to help split up your level we talk about not only in combat but making it feel kind of storytelling what's the story as we go down the streets in different areas of division we had like makeshift graveyards for those who'd sadly lost their lives due to the it seems so real now that obviously COVID's here but the pandemic that was happening in the fictional world of the division and other times you'd have maybe car crashes because people are trying to escape and just crashed into each other because they're such in a rush so you also want to do it like that to think about the story too yeah explain from a programming standpoint why that's yeah, bad guys? I will actually I'll give you, yeah there are technical reasons behind why that is a, a lot of a lot of the level design is more constructive you know instead of subtractive like it used to be and so yeah line of sight you know terrain engines and all of that kind of stuff gives you some very interesting yeah technical challenges but uh, it, largely it comes down to you know it's just you're trying to determine you know what you're going to draw in a tenth of a second at the most right <laughs> exactly mate exactly in the end we've all got that nightmare story of getting shot by someone and being like where who yeah you know? no it was my friend Devin. my god he was he was <laughs> one of the guys who made the two forts map for uh the original oh, okay. what was that called right two forts four 
He mm-hmm. and Jamie McTaggart worked on it together. They Jamie ended up getting hired at uh, Valve and started working on the Hammer editor. He was the original author of Worldcraft. Wow. Um, dropping names. Yeah, the two of them, <laughs> the two of them made Two Forts Four for what was the predecessor to that really popular Counter Strike? It was the one that everybody had before that, Team Fortress. Oh, yeah, Team yeah. Fortress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he and Devin also did like the uh, he did a rocket launcher add on or a or a stationary gun turret add on or something like that. Anyway, these guys, yeah, I've lost my train of thought living in in memory now. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, man. I'm gone. But- Damn you, Devin, is all we can say. Devin, Damn don't you, be Devin, such a yeah. sniper next time. Yeah, he made me quit playing Unreal. He made me basically quit, quit playing first-person shooters in general because <laughs> he found places to, to, to sit while we were playing multiplayer, and he'd just snipe. I'd never know where it came from. It pissed me off. I basically quit Son playing shooters because of it. Got you yeah, back you to see what you did? <laughs> Technology ruins ruins friendships. <laughs> yeah, ruins lives. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, now with uh, going back to the book, going mm. into flanking routes. This one's yeah. interesting because lots of choices. When do, what's the right point between like a lot of choices and not a lot of choices, and mm. where's the sweet spot for the players? Uh, it's a tough one, man, because again, it really depends on your design. But there is always that, you know, legendary rule of three, where it should probably best in three. Because the other issue you have is obviously having options is great, but if you have too many options, then the player becomes overwhelmed and they're like, "What am I? What am I doing? What leads to what here?" Because also the fact at the end of the day is, you want the player to you know, understand what the options are. We talked about in the flanking route, and for those who will purchase the book, you'll see the diagram that you can clearly see how the flanking routes are linked together. Now, if you just start throwing in doors, rooftops, or anything like that, you might not understand when you're sat where you're started. How does this lead to so-and-so? Where does this go? So it's it goes into that, but generally it becomes the rule. Like I said the rule of threes tends to be the best. You it's by no when I say rule, think of it as a guideline because everything in design is a guideline. Mm-hmm. It's not it's my cop out answer, so no one can call me out on it later. <laughs> but like it is that thing of even everything I put in the book, guys. It's more of guidelines because it's not not every game is the same. Every game is going to have different rules and regulations. And you know I mentioned this in the the book as well is once you understand these kind of guidelines, that's when you can start to bend them and start to play around with them more. And that's how you make such great moments in games. If you think of uh, Batman Arkham Knight, there's that brilliant one where we're putting in these three canisters. It's very slow. It's very kind of uh, mundane in the task. But the whole point of that was to make it mundane. So when the third one comes along, you get the shock of the Joker being there even though we thought he'd previously died. So it's like building on that where they've gone, okay, we've made it so it feels slower than normal because the reason is we want to surprise the player with the final turn, with the final canister. So it's that there. So yeah, there is no kind of hard rule is what I'm saying. Three tends to be the best, but as long as everything is clear for the player, you might be able to have more. Okay. So I think we've got another uh, don't make to add to our collection. So we say don't make wow. We also say don't make wow dragons. We're going to say don't make Times Square. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's the same. Don't make a system shock either because there's so many roots in those kind of sim <laughs> games. Yeah, Jesus, so much. Right. 
choices. What are, what are those, uh, the Chinese pinball machines or pachinko machines? Oh, pachinko, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, oh. don't want to make, you don't want your, your map to be a pachinko machine. <laughs> <laughs> Just have people very addicted to it <laughs> and all these flashing <laughs> lights and noises. Uh, I have never used a pachinko machine. Don't. I don't think. Don't? All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. When you go to a pachinko, like, uh, especially if you head over to Japan or somewhere, and you actually go to these stores which are designated, you're going to turn very death very fast because all the, <laughs> the noise coming down from those metal balls hitting down along oh, with the noise that they all make. So loud, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now uh, to the next section, level loops. I love this one because you mentioned Call of Duty Zombies. And I'm curious, do you think that they messed with the level loops in the newer versions? Uh, so in terms of the latest zombie, I can't say because I'm unsure of that. Okay. But in the previous ones, they do because of the fact that each time you open up a new room or a new section, it needs to loop around to it. It's not just going to lead in with just one only. So again, like I said, I can't speak for the new ones. I'm referring to the previous ones uh, for that. But yes, I, I think they do. I think because of the fact that one's solely based on survival and because there isn't much cover necessarily in terms of that, right? Because of the fact that you don't need cover against zombies because their whole process is to come charge you. The only way they can yeah. attack you is be up and close. So that way, instead, you need to make sure that the player can constantly move around and loop around so they're not overwhelmed or they don't get their back necessarily stuck against the wall mm -hmm. all the time. Otherwise, it can be a real, yeah, a real pain in the backside. Yeah, because if you've mastered zombies, it wasn't about camping anymore. It was more about training. Like, you get zombies in the train. Uh, no, that's called kiting. Yeah. <laughs> kite. That, see, that's, that's one of the reasons I stopped playing multiplayer games was kiting. <laughs> After that, I was I, like, why? Oh. I was an old school EQ wizard, so. <laughs> <laughs> you what we call the enemy. Quad so. kiting, man. That was how you leveled with those guys. There pretty, was, pretty much wasn't any other way to do it <laughs> past, like, 10, unless you grouped. Every time I was like, why? Just stand still. Stop it. Get back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Even better was my best friend played a necromancer, and he was a reverse kiter, which was even cooler. What's a reverse kiter? Well, that's where you use fear effects to make the monsters run away from you, and then you chase uh, them. Yeah. Son of a gun. You're the reason we, we get mad, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Oh, man. Now, the big one, the one that's most important is flow state. How do you establish yeah. flow state in levels? Yeah, well, okay, this is, again, you know, as I'm going to use my cop-out answer, <laughs> like every, every level is different. <laughs> um, but the, that's it. Finding the flow state for it is very much the biggest challenge in anything, whether it be a puzzle or that of combat. And... We talk about it, and one of the points in the book I mentioned is about a the first enemy should be a first, an e, should, the first enemy is an easy kill because we want the player to get into it very quickly. If it's a multiplayer game, you get into that flow state as you achieve unlocks in the original Modern Warfare. You know, you had the what was it? The airstrikes after five kills. Sorry, it's the radar after five kills. I think airstrike after fifteen is something at ten. And that got you into it because you were rewarded for getting to that level. But in a single-player game, you're not necessarily going to get those rewards per kill, but you want the player to feel like a badass instead. 
So we help that by taking care of the enemy at first. And then we have the challenge of, okay, well, now there's there was just one easy enemy, but now there's three enemies in this room with me. So you've got to make the challenge of their patrols or something or how they indicate when they're vulnerable to be taken out. These kind of elements, it's by keeping the either combat, the stealth or the puzzle slowly kind of upgrading the challenge little by little, not just minuscule little. That's the challenge there is finding what is the correct difficulty increase. There is a great uh, book, and I don't know why I've forgotten it, but it's called State of Flow. I can't remember who it's by, but that is the one that I'd recommend if you want to really understand flow state, because it explains it a lot better than I can. And it all comes, I believe it stems from psychology, it all stems from psychology originally, and we've just applied it to games and used it for games. So, but yeah, it's its, its own challenge. and. If I knew the answer, guys, trust me, I'd be charging a lot of money for consultation and wouldn't be here on this podcast. I'd be somewhere in my own private boat doing, you know, party things. So, like, if I knew the answers, guys, you know. I think you'll be doing it at the end of November. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, as you were describing it, I don't think I ever really, you know, had a sense or a word for Mm. that. But I do know exactly what you're talking about. And I mean, you feel it in a lot of things. You know, when you're when you're kind of in the groove at work, you know, you're writing a document and, you know, everything's just going the way it's supposed to be. Or you're just buzzed enough that you're playing pool really well. Yeah, that flow state happens even in shooters and everything else when you're just kind of there's you're you're kind of dealing with all of the action that's happening as it happens. And, you know, it's not you know, it's not it's like the game gets out of your way. Mm, exactly. Mate. And. That's the other thing, right, is especially when you're testing in early stages of development, nothing is working or going right at that time. So it's really friggin' hard for you to be like, yeah, we found it. Like, it takes time to you eventually have all your systems in place before you can do that. So, yeah, it takes time. And as I said, I'll... I think it's called The State of Flow. It's a great book. The cover is blue and yellow from what I remember. And I I really enjoyed that book. It's definitely on my recommended reading for anyone who's wants to know more. Yeah, so it's it's called Flow, the Optimal, no, Psychology of the Optimal Experience. The so name I was almost was, right. Yeah, it's by Mihala Sistakum. I haven't even wanted to yep. attempt that. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a great book. It's if you just type in flow, you'll find it. I read it too one time on a cruise, and it was just it's interesting because, like, when I played Call of Duty back in the day, there'd be moments where I didn't even care how many points I had, the kills I had. I was just like, I'm gonna play. And there'd be times when I was like, I'm about to get that like 25 kill streak nuke, but the second I'm at like the one kill left, I get in my head, I get out of flow state, and I just like, <laughs> like yeah, I'm like, all right, I just need one more kill, and then I just mess everything up, and I die, and I get mad, and I throw my controller, and I'm like, I hate this game. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. As soon as you get in your own way, you're like, son of a... Yeah, I now, with one click, Kindle deliver to my... Thanks for that recommendation, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But yeah, yeah, so that's... I do know what flow state is, and I love when games let you get into that state, because I've noticed, too, even with campaign games, it's like, there'll be moments where I'm just not in the... I don't know, I had to read the Redemption 2. Because of the long horse riding, I would just get out of the game. I'm like, all right, whatever. 
And then we go to the mission, and then I have to go back into that flow state again. Whereas like you get other games like Uncharted or Last of Us, which just sets you up after mission after mission. You boom, boom, boom. You're in the state. You just want to keep playing. You don't want to stop. So it's interesting. Yeah. That conversation can go on forever about how to maintain flow state. Oh yeah, and like I said, it's there still hasn't been a defined method. Yep, that's the one. That's the bad boy. I know you're gonna figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like to work? What is the flow answer? Yeah. I said, guys, if I knew I would be selling that for a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're right on the button about it though. I mean, it just takes time. You got to kind of iterate through it until it feels right. And, and, and that was kind of the way that I, I always felt about it. Like when the game got out of my way, you know, the way that I said that before was kind of when, you know, I felt like everything was, was working the way that it was intuitive, you know, in, in corporate terms, I think they call that UX user experience, (laughs) right. That, um, there's there's uh, there's a bunch of you know rules and stuff related to user experience. One of them is what they call the principle of least surprise, which mm. is if you do something on a computer, the least surprising thing should happen. Like if you click forward and instead it deletes an email, that's a very surprising thing, right? If you click forward and it you know lets you forward an email, that's the least surprising thing that would happen. Right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean a lot of the times it's it's kind of you know I almost feel like some of the other conversations we've had with people talking about like you know the unfunning of things removing Mm. the things that are not fun from it is kind of all part and parcel of the same thing the design is about finding that essential flow i love it yeah and i say it's like you know do read out the read the book because it is uh, a great one and if you are looking for another good one uh it's called gamers brain by celia hodent Mm -hmm. she uh is uh phenomenal she was the lead ux designer i believe I hope it's UX, otherwise she's going to kick my ass when she sees me next. But, like, she, uh, on Fortnite, and she's now freelance, she goes around talking about it, and she's incredible, like, really one of the, the overall designers. She she is a, or was formerly a psychologist prior to getting into the games, too. So she really has a really great understanding of that. So, yes, do check out that one as well. She hey, if we're dropping recommendations along those lines, <laughs> here's another one. Send, send it my way. <laughs> uh, stumbling on Happiness. Stumbling on Happiness. Right, I'm going to get my Kindle too now. Maybe let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hold on a second. I need to remember what the guy's name was, so I'm looking it up as well. Um, yeah, Daniel Gilbert wrote this. So, he's the, uh, the head of the Hedonic Psychology Lab at Harvard. He wrote this book, looks like 2006, so yeah, quite a while ago. The uh, most humorous thing about it is that the intro to the book basically says, so this is not a self-help book. This is a a book about the clinical psychological studies that I've done related to hedonism. If you're looking (laughs) for the self-help books, they're down two sections. And when you've gone there and read all of those books, you can come back here and read this one to understand why none of them worked. (laughs) <laughs> that's weird because it's just seeing that people also search for Blink by Malcolm Gladwell which is a book that I, I read which Blink. again very yeah, good. Which, yeah, all of his books yeah. are very good actually yeah so to see uh, I think uh, that's these right here there we go <laughs> there we go infamous bookshelf hang <laughs> on that's nice <laughs> fantastic so alright I'll check that one out then see everyone's getting a reading list today Oh man, the reading list for sure. <laughs> I already got like thousands I need to read. So many. Yeah, and all the games you make me have to play. Come on, guys. 
<laughs> I still have to finish Half Life. Come on. <laughs> I haven't even started. I'm slacking. I've been playing too much Ghost of Tsushima. Came and say it. Yes. I was. You, looking... you... Oh, sorry. Go on. Oh, no. Interrupted you, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> you were I was saying say if you guys played it. No. I'm not yet. So, uh, you guys probably went through this stuff in the early chapter when I was not on the call. And I kind of, I'm, I'm loath to, to go back to it again, but if you don't mind. Because um, we were just talking about, uh, like, you know, that, that flow state is kind of related also to um, uh, what you were saying about, like, getting the tuning of, like, the distances that weapons work and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of scrolling through the book and I saw some of that kind of stuff. And it reminded me of one of the most interesting mechanics, because we were just talking about kiting. One of the most interesting mechanics in EverQuest was the way that you actually had to do kiting. And it was super, super critical on timing. So the key thing to it was that the amount of time that it took to cast a quad pillar of fire, for example was from the very furthest distance that you could start casting it, uh, a monster running at their normal pace would be able to get to you and hit you before you finished casting the spell. So in order to solve that problem, there was also another spell that snared those characters, that snared enemies, and snare in in EverQuest meant walk slower. It was like Mm -hmm. putting a net or something around their feet or brambles or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the cast time for snare was very short. So in order to properly quad kite, you had to first cast the snare on the guys to make them walk slower, and then you had enough time to cast your Pillar of Fire to actually do damage to them. And the timing was, like, super critical. It was, like, a quarter of a second. If you if you screwed it up within a quarter of a second, you could hit. But, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, I mean, the, the brilliance of the tuning of those two spells and that particular ability for that character class was just, it was one of my favorite things about the design of the game. Did they, did they teach that, or was that something players figured out? Well, I mean, this was back in the day when, like, you know, you, you'd talk on message boards, and, you know, so there was Graf's Wizard Compilation was where all of the wizards in the community kind of talked and figured out, you know, we all just kind of figured out the mechanics. There wasn't documentation on this kind of stuff. They didn't, you know, we were all discovering these things. The, the designers of the game were, you know, pretty tight-lipped. I mean, everybody remembers the... Oh, rest in peace. I can't remember his name right now, but the old uh, the old CEO of Sony Online Entertainment, uh, who you know had the "You're in our world now" oh, you know, perspective okay. on things. Yeah, yeah, well, it I mean, was. <laughs> oh, what that's was that? some, sometimes that's the best thing I like about that. I was like, when the players figure it out for themselves, I think is sometimes yeah, the best. Sure. I mean, you know, it was, it's so easy these days for everybody to broadcast content and, you know, the first person who figures something out, you know, they'll make a YouTube video and now nobody else gets to figure out that problem, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks to them, I could finish freaking, what was it called? Uh, Bloodborne. God, if I didn't have that. I think that kind of also ties back into you know the the kinds of dis, you know decision points that that you know are critical in the planning and blocking out of the level as well. You know when you're talking about like you know how long does it take for you to uh, reload a weapon or a character you know typical reload time is that enough time for somebody to move from one cover point to another cover point when they mm-hmm. hear you stopping your firing? You now that kind of stuff is all very important. Yeah. What part do you make the cover and stuff? Exactly, mate. And again, it all comes down to that communication. If you don't know that, then 
you're going to make something that you think in your mind, right? Yeah, there's there's enough time here, and the player gets gunned down. So again, it's all about again just gathering that information and as you're saying, you know, talking about it, experimenting, iterating on it, and then that all stuff comes together and makes it well, hopefully, makes it great. Maybe yeah, your goal. Yeah, your goal is basically goal. to make the player feel like it's their fault they're di- they died, never to blame you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're blaming you, there's a problem. That's the best way to phrase it. Trick them into thinking it's their fault. <laughs> this, this was, again, one of our design principles on Half-Life. If, if the player blamed you for them dying or making a wrong decision, then you did not design your level correctly. Go fix it. Yeah, exactly. So, no, it's... Uh, yeah. Always about trying to make sure the make the player feel like they're always at fault, but uh... I mean, ultimately, it's about you know it was the same thing about like you know nothing happens unless the player actually moves, right? It's it's yeah. it's about empowering the person who's playing the avatar to feel like they are embodied within that avatar that that they are that they are actually present there and that their choices matter in the same way that they would in real life. Mm. Yeah. You, you remove those barriers to the to the what do they call it the something divide the <laughs> you remove those barriers from the from the distractions that that make it so that you can't uh, you know they use the term in movies uh, suspend disbelief right yeah if if you find things that are like out of yeah like I mean I hate it I mean a lot of times it's you know it's frustrating when you know I forget to reload so like I'm I'm going down and I'm like oh man there's three enemies and I get that bloodlust and I just run after them and I'm like crap I have to reload and then you die mm, yes because <laughs> you're like ah crap I forgot to reload <laughs> yeah that's the worst feeling ever because then you have to freaking retreat and like God no no. <laughs> I always, that's why I always reload. Anytime I'm playing a shooter game, I'm like reloading every second. My friends are like, why are you always reloading? I was like, you never know when I can't reload and I'm going to need it. 29 out of 30. Never let's know. reload. <laughs> that's me. That's always me. I'm like, I'm not 30. I got to reload. It's uh, basically, you never know when you're going to need every last shot in that clip. <laughs> exactly. Especially in zombies. <laughs> you know, one bullet's always saved me. Everybody's like, how do you, how do you live? I'm like, it's that one bullet, guys. You don't understand how important it is. <laughs> like, even if you just shot once, reload. <laughs> <laughs> now, back to the book. Less is more is your favorite uh, saying, and why is it so important to you? Uh, well, I think it comes from the fact of, again, similar mistakes I've made in my career, where we talk about cover, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, so cover's really important for the player and the enemy, so I'm going to make sure there's all this cover. And because you have so much cover, they kind of lose their value. Like, what is good cover? What is the opportune cover? And then you tend to find that you kind of lose that a bit. So that's why I always think if you retract more, you start to add more value to each kind of cover that there is there versus, like I said, crowding the space with it. And then you also are able to you know, strategize. Even if it's not a decision point, you can still make choices, more kind of micro choices in your level with that of your cover so yeah that's that's part of the reasons why man mm-hmm. that's a good one not just for like building levels but in just like thinking about levels thinking about everything is like doing less is always better yeah like if you focus only on doing level design that day instead of trying to do like 10 things like i'm gonna build i'm gonna build a book i'm gonna build i'm gonna work out like you just start building your your life up you're like 
I am not getting anything done. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's important in everything. Even for games that TV students and like studying wise, it's just like focus on a few things, do those things really well, and you'll win. Less is more. Exactly, exactly, guys. And I think that's a. If it's all right with you, well, we'll leave it off because it's eight o'clock here, and I need to make some food because I am very hungry. So you can keep that in the edit if you want, guys. Let the people yeah. know I eat. No, actually, Same no here. problem. And before we, the last thing I want to say before we end it is. What do you hope that everybody gets out from this book? I think the thing is what I want is hopefully they just don't make the same mistakes I did, that this can really kind of help them grow kind of, I don't want to use the word faster because I think that's a wrong term to use, but just more in a, a better, give, give them a better understanding so they can make better choices without their levels. Like I said, I didn't have this and there was mistakes that I was still doing at the time. So hopefully, no one needs to make those mistakes after reading this book, hopefully. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv slash courses or in the show notes with a 10% discount. Get started with your game development journey today.